Well, good morning. It is a joy and privilege to have the opportunity to be back at Berean at the Church Ministries Conference in March. One of you came up to me and said, when are you coming back to Berean? I said, well, I, I mean, I don't know. They're really, um, I have responsibilities at West Cannon. And probably five weeks later, Doug Crawford came back from speaking here and said, Bill Abernathy needs someone to speak when he's on vacation. And the people there love you guys. Would you be available? And I said, I would be. I would, be, I would be great. And so um, I just want to commend you that continuing relationship that we have hasn't stopped because we're no longer on the field. And you actually made Doug a little envious of that relationship of a su- supporting church and their missionaries. And he was just kind of blown away by your response uh, of learn- knowing that we're on their staff and-, and working together. So it's been a joy also to have a little bit more opportunity to see Bill with, with through Bridge Fellowship. Um, I've counted him a friend and a ministry colleague and just grateful for that opportunity in his service and just the way um, hearing how he's led a transition that you're in the midst of. And just um, thank you for the prayers. Those of you on the search committee, I think that reveals your hearts and that of the church as you go through this important process of seeking God's next shepherd for your congregation. Um, always good to see Jim and Karen and thanks so much, Steve, and just the thought you put into connecting the lyrics of the songs that we sang to prepare our hearts for the text that we will look at this morning. So it's a, it's a real joy to be here this morning. Well, we've seen the text already, and as you read it, you probably thought, oh yeah, I know that, those verses. I've heard them. They're not new ones, but they're probably not ones that we reflect on often, except when our plans change. And oftentimes it's someone else that has to come along and remind us of the truths of these verses because we're oftentimes we've, we're caught unawares. I found myself in the past three years coming back to this text with more regularity and with more intentionality, um, sprinkling it into conversations, ending emails with as the Lord wills. And not just as a perfunctory thing, but with a clear recognition that our plans might very well change. Uh, Three years ago, as COVID hit in March of 2020, how many of our plans changed drastically? Major events that were planned, probably some high school graduations, college graduations, family get-togethers, reunions, weddings, venue changed, funerals, they looked a lot different. Church itself, those were givens, weren't they? Those were things that happened like clockwork. We planned them. There was nothing wrong with the way we planned them or that we planned them. But as events and circumstances and a sovereign God intervened, how did we respond when our plans were frustrated, when our plans were changed, when our plans were shattered and completely rearranged? Those are the things that reflect our heart It also reflects, as we look back, maybe there were good plans, but how did we come about establishing those plans? Was there thought for God? Was there thought for this is what we think would be the best choice of our plans and our time and our energies? And this text gives us an opportunity to to reflect on that. It changed our plans drastically. We had had a difficult 2019, but we had really enter 2020 with a lot of excitement. 
and we had some big things on the agenda. We had one of our busiest travel schedules planned. We had some teams uh, in some some really exciting transitions. We had some teams in crisis that were planning to visit. We had some events that were on the calendar. Uh, We had an upcoming regional conference with our whole team coming together with an exciting venue. We also had some things happening internally. And then, one by one, border after border closed, and we went nowhere. And so our responsibilities changed. And you experienced the same thing. Our worlds got smaller. Our plans changed. And how did we respond? Well, this passage that we're looking at this morning in James chapter 4 is in the mix of kind of a subset of James. And James, some would consider the wisdom literature of the New Testament. And you see a lot of parallels and carryovers to the, to the wisdom literature of the Proverbs, of even some of the arrangement. And then there are those who kind of outline the book of James, but unlike some of Paul's epistles, it's not quite as cut and dry. Uh, there are some themes and some topics, but they may not fit as successfully or successively um, building on one another as others. But we see that in this particular section that begins in chapter 3, verse 13, James contrasts wisdom from above with the wisdom from below. Whereas if you think of the, the Proverbs terminology, contrast wisdom with folly. And as you think back to Proverbs, and Proverbs 1-7 gives us that foundational truth that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And fools despise instruction. The fear of the Lord, that proper reverence, giving God his due as the almighty, sovereign Lord of creation, who not only is transcendent, but cares about the very details of our lives. And it's a fear of him that's the beginning of wisdom. And James begins to develop that. And ultimately, wisdom from above, we see, we find, finds expression when we have a right view of ourselves. Even that posture of reverence gives us an understanding. But in James 4, 6, he says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He follows that up in verse 7. So therefore, submit yourselves to God. And again in verse 10, humble yourselves before God. In this section, this section on wisdom and folly, folly manifests itself in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. By desire, unchecked desires, incorrect desires, beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. The next section talks about the problem of pride, verses 5 through 10. Verses 11 and 12 talk about the problems of having a superior view of ourselves that allows us to elevate ourselves and therefore judge and slander other fellow brothers and sisters. And then in chapter 5, the beginning verses, he talks about greed as the epitome of folly, the manifestations of folly. But this morning we look, and maybe your Bible even has a little header in this section, boasting. Boasting about tomorrow, verses 13 through 17 in chapter 4. So if God wills, Common phrase, right? Or Lord willing. We tack it on. Sometimes with intentionality, sometimes maybe a bit out of rote. Um, But there's an importance to that phrase. 
It recognizes that we are going to put aside the pride of our plans. And really, when you think about it, the presumptuousness of our plans, that I'm going to plan it and it's going to happen. So the main idea, to kind of summarize where we're going to be this morning, these five simple verses, is that we display wisdom from above when we humbly recognize our continuous dependency on God and we submit our plans to his will with open hands. The plans that we do make, we hold loosely. We display wisdom from above when we humbly recognize our continuous dependency on God and we submit our plans to his will with open hands. Now there's a flip side that we see to this main idea, this positive thrust. The negative example that is scattered throughout these verses is that we demonstrate wisdom from below, we demonstrate folly when we make plans in our pride without consideration for God, thus revealing our sinful, evil delusions of autonomy, control, and self-sufficiency. So as you think about this idea, there's probably some other verses from Proverbs that come to mind, and you may very well have inscribed these very recently in some graduation cards, because one of the most go-to verses for graduates we find in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding, in all your ways, in all your plans, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. So a brief outline to see where we're going in these five verses. Simple point for each verse. They flow, kind of interplay here as James develops this topic. We see a common condition, a core critique, a corrective counsel, and maybe what might be most surprising in verse, as we get to verse 16, a clarifying condemnation that this is serious. James treats this very seriously. It might come across as pretty, oh, boy, that's helpful. That's wise. James would say, beyond that, it's serious. And then a continuing call or obligation as James calls us to accountability. Let's begin with the common condition, verse 13. It's really planning without thought of God. Practical atheism. We claim to believe in God. We claim that he is Lord of our lives. But oftentimes we go about our business without proper acknowledgement. And the Tyndale New Testament commentary begins this section by observing that this passage is a warning for Christians of the worldliness which causes its victims to neglect God and to arrange their lives as though he did not exist and as if they alone are masters of their destiny. Verse 13 begins, Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So James begins by addressing kind of an an overheard conversation. Very common, very natural, very normal. He hears these people discussing their plans. And to these, he addresses them, come now. So this is an invitation to provide wisdom, an invitation to avoid folly, that they may be very well unknowingly be following. 
And as we think of this very simple plan that we overhear in one very short sentence, notice the presumptuousness of one's own knowledge, choices, abilities, and results. And in these commonly shared plans, in this one sentence, we can see at least eight presumptions that are treated as certainties, right? Because of course they'll happen because that's how I planned it. The first of all is the time of departure. So today or tomorrow, relatively soon, this is when I have it planned. Second is the actual departure, that everything, they actually leave. Not only when it happens, but that it, that it does happen. Arrival at the specific destination. No thought for a change of flights or the boat gets delayed or swept off course. Arrival at the specific destination. The amount of time to be spent there. They're pretty kind of defined here. We're going to go spend a year and trade and then... So the ability to do business. The ability to make a profit. And then the assumption of returning home. And underlying all of these that we'll see in the next couple of verses also is the assumption, the plan of continued life itself. And so this is kind of life on autopilot. Life on cruise control. The GPS coordinates have been set by the plans that I have made. And off we go. And of course they're going to come about because I have established them. And Alec Macher critiques this by saying, it's all so ordinary, indeed so natural, and that's exactly the point. When James exposes the blemish of presumptuousness, he exposes something which is the unrecognized claim of our hearts. We speak to ourselves as if life were our right, as if our choice were the only deciding factor, as if we had in ourselves all that was needed to make a success of things, as if getting on, making money, and doing well were life's sole objective. It's planning without thought of God. It's planning without considering what, whether those plans will happen. So this is this common condition that James addresses. He invites these who are making these plans, come now, listen. And he offers them a very sobering reality check. He critiques this conversation that he overhears in verse 14. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So part of the reality check that James introduces is you're not even considering your own ignorance, your lack of knowledge, your lack of true certainty of what's going to happen. As John Calvin wrote, they claimed for themselves a whole year, though they had not a single moment in their own power. And so Proverbs, again, addresses this. We have an inbuilt ignorance. We don't even know what tomorrow will bring, let alone next year. And to think and to act otherwise is to boast. Proverbs 27 says, do not boast about tomorrow, 
for you do not know what a day may bring. Not only is to think and act as if we aren't ignorant, boasting, but as we saw in the passage from Luke, it is foolishness. And as Jesus recounts the parable of of the rich man who had built the bigger barns and was content in his self-sufficiency, and oh, what should I do next? Oh, I'll just build bigger barns. It was all about himself. And in verse 20 of Luke chapter 12, and God says to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You thought you've built bigger barns to save, protect for yourself, but you're not even going to be here. So there's ignorance. But not only is there uncertainty due to unknown factors, unknown elements about the future and its complexities that we don't know about, we're ignorant about, but also there's the brevity and frailty of our own lives. We are but a mist appearing for a little time, and then vanishing. And for those of you who have the printed notes, one of the reasons that I included those 15 other references in Scripture to this point, that we are but a mist, a vapor like grass, is that reminder of the brevity of our lives. It doesn't diminish the value of our lives served in obedience to God. Submit yourself, therefore, to God, and he will exalt you, it says in 1 Peter or to serve him, but a reminder of our dependence on him and that we are not self-sufficient. We are not immortal in these bodies. So we see that there's an unknown duration of life and health, and we're going to see this emphasized in the following verses to come as well. Donald Burdick writes, They have been planning as if they know exactly what the future holds, or even as if they have control of the future, Not only is their knowledge limited, but their very lives are uncertain. And so James critiques this common conversation that he overhears about their planning. Now, James doesn't just leave it there by critiquing them and kind of leaving them. It's like, well, what are we to do? He responds in helpful. He provides this corrective counsel. How to plan in light of God's sustenance and will. This shows his providence. His sovereignty. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now notice there's two phrases here. And we kind of easily combine them and kind of skip over them. But the first point is that dependence on God for life itself. If the Lord lives, if the Lord wills, we will live. That's the starting point. Our continued existence on this earth is dependent upon God. And if he continues to will that, we know he has ordained our days. And he has established that for us. But that starting point is that God wills for us to continue living and shows a recognition of our daily dependence upon him. One of the songs that we sang included some of the the themes from the prayer that, that Jesus taught the disciples One of those is to give us this day our daily bread. It was that aspect of dependency. And not weekly or monthly. You think back in terms of bread 
and you think to the Old Testament of manna and how God provided the manna that was good for one day and then it spoiled. The exception of the day before Sabbath provided two days' worth. But you couldn't stockpile it for yourself. You couldn't be creative. You couldn't hoard it and then be lazy. No, you were daily dependent upon God, the promise-keeping God of his people to provide the needs for the next day. And that's where, even as I was, was working with a little, few, some words in the main idea, the difference between continual and continuous. Continual may be periodic, but as we think continuous, it's that next second, that next breath is a gift from God that he allows us to have by his will. And then beyond that of our existence, secondarily, our dependence on God for fulfillment of our plans. If God wills, we will live and do this or that. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, this wasn't a brand new thought, even as James introduced it. Even in, the, in Greek society, with their um, multiple gods, there was an acknowledgement of the gods. And oftentimes, at the beginning of any significant undertaking, they would also utter the words, with the leave and blessing of God, whichever God they might have chosen. But even in that phrase, the humility of with the leave, with the permission of, recognizing authority, and the blessing of God, lower, lowercase g, God. But that same idea, if the Lord wills. God willing. If God permits, he allows and God blesses because we are dependent upon him. Now, thankfully, we serve a God whose mercies are new every morning. We know, those of us who know Christ and are in relationship with the true God of the Bible, a generous giving God, a good God, and one who can be trusted. Not just some hope that the divine or the deity cares for us or allows us to carve out some aspect of existence, but a life that is lived under his sovereign umbrella and providence and goodness. The true true Christian submits his or plans to the lordship of Christ, writes MacArthur. This tying also of food and sustenance, of manna, give us today our daily bread. We see in Jesus talking about doing the will of the Father in John 4, 34. And Jesus told them, my food, my sustenance, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so the corrective counsel, the instruction that James gives here is not to not plan. Uh, And I had the opportunity to serve in several cultures that planning was kind of viewed as unspiritual. James doesn't say stop planning. He says, but what you ought to say is if the Lord wills. It changes how we plan, not that we plan. In Genesis 41, we see that God gave the dreams to Joseph to foresee the coming famine and to take advantage of the seven years of plenty to store grain that fed not only Egypt, but also Joseph's family who traveled to Egypt to avoid famine and hunger. In Luke 14, it talks about counting the cost before building a tower. 
That you don't look foolish by having a half-finished project and without the sufficient funds and materials to complete it. Or that a, a king must estimate the amount of troops he has versus the opponent that he might choose to attack. Is there sufficient force of strength in order to win that? So planning is not the issue here. The Apostle Paul scattered throughout his letters. He talks about the plans he has. If, if the Lord wills, I would like to come and see you. If God wills, I'm going to Spain to proclaim the gospel. It's not about that we plan, but how we plan and having open hands if God wills. Now this phrase, if God wills or Lord willing, is it, has it become trite? Have we avoided it because it become, it's lost its meaning? There's been several comments about that. Uh, R.V. Tasker writes that there is a real danger that the expression God willing may be used too glibly and so become a formality devoid of religious content. For the most part, however, Christians today do not give sufficient expression to this sense of man's utter dependence upon the will of the transcendent God. And they might profitably ask themselves whether their refusal to say God willing is really due to a horror of hypocrisy or to a failure to acknowledge the supremacy of God. Scattered throughout the writings, particularly of some of the Puritans, you may see in parentheses D period, V period, lowercase. It's short for the Latin Deus Valente or Deo Valente, depending on how you kind of, um, the declension of that noun, but meaning God willing. And uh, actually, was in corresponding with a, a guy recently who is quite in, enthralled with, with the Puritans, and I just noticed that right in the middle of his paragraph, DV. And you think, oh, and you think, okay, is that so common that it's now been abbreviated and parenthesized? Or is that a good way to just kind of insert a reminder and an acknowledgement that we are dependent upon God's will? Well, after James has provided this instruction, this corrective counsel of how we should go about planning, he revisits the common condition in probably a way that is surprising to us, that maybe catches us off guard. Because in verse 16, he shows that planning without God is not just foolish and wrong, but sinful. And James actually uses the term evil. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. That term caught me off guard. Like, wow, so this is a, this is a big one. This is very serious. Planning without God is boastful arrogance. Literally, you are boasting in your arrogant pretensions. That we, when we do that, we have a proud confidence in our own knowledge or cleverness. But the implication is that these qualities aren't really in our possession. They're fake. They're manufactured. They're artificial. They're counterfeit. And this human self-confidence and self-congratulation that we see as we make our plans and count on them without acknowledging God falsely project autonomy control, and self-sufficiency, seeing life itself as a continuing right rather than a daily mercy. And so the things that James has kind of suggested in verses 13, 
14 and 15, he now makes very clear in verse 16. First of all, our only boasting should be in God. And Paul writes about that a couple of times. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Galatians, our boasting should be in Christ. But also in Jeremiah 9, we see an instructive help. In chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, Thus says the Lord, Let the wise man not boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Nor let the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. It sounds a whole lot like the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord, doesn't it? And so planning without God is boastful ignorance. And that boastful arrogance, boastful arrogance, and that boastful arrogance, planning without God, is actually evil. The word arrogance, Mitten writes that the word arrogance is also used in 1 John 2.16, where it is translated as the pride of life. In association with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, it represents the spirit of the world, which is at enmity with God and all that God stands for. All such boasting, with its accompanying arrogance, writes James, is evil. And Alec Macher adds on to this, in other words, when even in little, secret, almost unrecognizable ways we forget how frail we are and stop short of conscious dependence on our God, it is an element of the proud, boastful, vaunting human spirit flaunting its supposed independence and self-sufficiency, and as such, it is evil, verse 16. And James offers no qualification of that word. He merely says evil, the word which other scriptures use of the devil, the evil one. And so as we go about planning with our insistence or our uh, uh, assumptions, our presumptuousness that our plans are going to happen, that our plans are important, that we don't need to consult God with our plans, that we're going to follow our will, it's the same sin of pride as Lucifer. He wanted to call the shots. He wanted to decide what was right and wrong. He wanted to do his thing and have it blessed by God, irregardless of what God's plan and intent were for him. That's what makes this so dangerous. In fact, evil, as James writes. And then he closes with verse 17 to show a continuing call, an accountability that now that he's made us aware that we can't omit to include God in our plans and to consider God as reality comes about, whether it's our plans or some other. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The so, or the therefore, in some of your translations that begin that, connect this to the preceding verses. Really, the only commentary discussion about meaning or intent or even controversy in these five verses is how verse 17 fits in. And yet this conjunction very clearly draws it back to the preceding verses and the relationship of our plans to God's will. And here James begins to show and reflect the proactive moral requirements in the ethic of Jesus. 
that sin is not only doing what is forbidden by God, but it's also failing to do what is good. We see that in the parable of the talents in Matthew 16, that the one servant who took that one talent and did nothing with it, but simply hid it away instead of having an opportunity to do good, was condemned. In Matthew 25, not responding to the least of these. And Jesus says, and you did not feed me when I was hungry or give me drink when I was thirsty or clothe me when I was naked or visit me when I was in prison. And the people said, Jesus, when did we ever see you like this? He says, to the amount that you did to the least of these. That opportunity, that proactive, the same as the good Samaritan, the two who passed by. And yet the foreigner with no legal obligation no natural heartfelt love for this person took the time at great personal expense to meet the needs that were there. And even the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And so we see that now that we've been aware, being made aware, this is important. We might consider it a small thing, a passing feature of life if we forget how dependent we are and act in mere self-will. But James sees it as the hard core of vaunting pride, which is the mark and curse of fallen man. Here, above all places, we cannot afford to fall into the sin of omission. So we see that we display wisdom from above when we humbly recognize our continuous dependency on God and we submit our plans to his will with open hands. So how do we apply this? Beyond the making of our plans, of laying them before God as we establish them, but as we go forward, do the plans that we've established, even good plans, consistent with God's will, are we holding those loosely before him? Because a sovereign God often overrules human plans, even good ones, in order to fulfill his purposes. We can establish our plans according to God's will, but then we must wait with open hands and see if and how God might allow those plans to develop. And if they don't happen, and remember, James opens, when you encounter various trials, consider it joy. How many of those trials have been part of our plans? Probably very few, if any, or none of them. Those weren't part of our plans. But when we encounter them, James instructs, consider them joy. If God wills. But when they don't happen and our plans are changed or disrupted or destroyed, it often reveals how tightly we might be holding on to them. Have your plans, even good plans, become idols? that God might have to unclench your fingers to let go of because he has something better in mind, something that we may not have chosen, something that may hurt to get there. But this is part of God's plans. These can be short-term plans. It can be about the weather. I remember as a child, particularly if it rained when I had a baseball game, I would get angry. And my parents would have to remind me, do you you realize who you're angry with? That God is in control of the weather. It could be a promotion. It could be a bigger house. It could be significant plans. It might be a relationship that you really thought was going to be the one. 
It could be that at this point in your life, you had thought you would be married. You wanted to be married. Or couples that had desperately desired to have children. And that hasn't been what God has planned or allowed. You expected your retirement to look much differently than it did, than it does. You thought your relationship with your adult kids would be uh, significantly. You might live closer to them. We don't know what those plans might have been. And sometimes those plans are changed rather suddenly. An unexpected diagnosis, a serious injury with debilitating effects and what that might alter our plans. And if our plans don't happen, we can trust him to do what is best according to his perfect will. As Paul David Tripp writes, in grace, he leads you where you didn't plan to go in order to produce in you what you couldn't achieve on your own. So when our plans are disrupted, do we complain? Do we get mad? Do we insist on those plans that we have? Or do we view that as an opportunity to trust God and to praise him for what he is going to do? If God wills or Lord willing, it's not a magic formula. It's not a protective superstition. Um, One of the as I looked up Deo Valente, one said, a verbal knock on wood. That's not what this is. Or it's not that, oh, if God wills, that now I've locked God in because I acknowledged him. Now he's got to come through with my plans. It's simply a humble recognition of who he is and who we are. And it's not always spoken. We may not always tag it on, but perhaps we need to tag it on more often. So that we're aware, as we talk to ourselves, but that our hearers are aware too, that we are cognizant and acknowledging Almighty God. A Christian's reluctance to use the phrase God willing at all in his speech may spring not from a determination to avoid shampiety, but from a blameworthy timidity to bear testimony to his faith in God's controlling authority over our lives. But whether the words are audibly spoken or not, it is important that our attitude to the future and our plans in it should be made only with a humble awareness that all we intend is under God. Wisdom from above, true wisdom, is submission to God because he is worthy, because he is wise, and because he is good. And we can trust him with our clock, with our calendar, with our career, with our circumstances, with our challenges. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And he is trustworthy. Final verse in Jeremiah 29.11. For I know, no ignorance there, No brevity or frailty, the almighty God of the universe. I know the plans I have for you. It's personalized. He knows you. He knows what's best. Plans for welfare, for peace, and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. And we leave our plans in his hands and according to his will. And we trust how he is going to lead. Father, we're grateful for this instruction from James this morning. And a phrase that has maybe entered our minds more often in these last few years, with some worldwide events, a pandemic, 
and a halt to a lot of normal activities. Let it be instructive that even the, the everyday assumptions we make of our calendar or our schedule, that we need to be seeking you, acknowledging you as we plan, and holding our hands open as you will. We trust you. We thank you that you are a good God. You're a sovereign God. You're providential in the details of our lives. And may we honor you with our plans and the way we live our lives. And God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you and doesn't know Christ as Savior, may that be clear that that is understood this morning. And may they have an opportunity, not just in plans, but in the control of life, the forgiveness of sins, seek you today. In Jesus' name, amen.